0: Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yeah. It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. It's podcast number 129 for February 8, 2009. Vista is pretty. However, it is slow, unless you throw a lot of hardware at it or strip away all the pretty stuff. In fact, it's slow even after you throw a lot of hardware at it, unless you turn off all the stuff that makes Vista, Vista. So given that, my recommendation for speeding Vista is to replace it with XP and hope that Microsoft gets Windows 7 right. Early indications are that Windows 7 is Vista Done Right. But even if you have an XP machine, there's probably a lot you can do to make the machine faster. So let's take a look at some of the things you could do. First of all, step number one, obtain and install Tweak UI. This is a Microsoft Power Toy. Microsoft makes several Power Toys, and there's a link where you can go to download them. From Microsoft, you'll find the link on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Power Toys are free. They are not supported by Microsoft. Now, not all of the changes I recommend in the section about Tweak UI make the computer faster, but some of them will make it less annoying. Once you've installed Tweak UI, you can turn off desktop items that you don't use, I don't want Internet Explorer or My Documents to be on the desktop by default. I have a quick launch button for Internet Explorer when I have to use it, and I don't use My Documents because I prefer to store My Documents in the location of my own choosing. Usually that's on Drive D. If you want to use My Documents, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with using it. In fact, it is one way to make sure all of your documents are in the same general area. My preference simply is not to use it. In Windows Explorer, you can right click and create a new file or a shortcut. On rare occasions, I create a faux text file to serve as a marker in the directory. I would never, however, create a Word, Excel, or InDesign file that way. Microsoft will offer all of these by default. What that means is anytime I right click Windows Explorer, there will be a long long okay maybe it's only four or five seconds but it seems like an eternity when you're waiting for it a long delay between the time I right click and the time I get a list of file types I can create so tweak UI will let you turn off all of the file types that you'll never use and that means when you right click in Windows Explorer the list will pop up very quickly I also recommend turning off indexing this is a point of contention among various computer folks Some people really like indexing. Some people, like me, really dislike indexing. My feeling is this. Even if you're not very well organized, you can probably find a file manually almost as fast as Windows can find the file using an indexed search. And the problem with indexed searching for XP or Vista is that indexing runs all the time, and it can slow the machine to a crawl. Start the control panel. Open administrative tools. Choose the Services tab. Scroll down to Indexing Service, double-click it, and set the startup type either to Manual or Disabled. If you are on a network, either at the office or at home, you may have some mapped network drives. If a network drive is no longer present, Windows will spend a lot of time looking for it during the startup process. XP is better than Windows 2000 and earlier versions when it comes to this, but the process will still be faster if you remove links to any network drives that are no longer physically present. And if you always reconnect to a network drive that you rarely use, you might want to disconnect it too and reconnect only when you need it. The more mapped drives there are, the slower the machine will be. I also recommend turning off autoplay. In fact, I think it should never have been enabled by default. I am not a fan of autoplay. It is rare that I want autoplay to happen. I may place an installation disc in a drive, but when I do that, in most cases, I probably want to obtain some additional content or take a look at something that's on the CD or DVD. I don't want to install the program because it's already there, except for the very first time I put the disk in a drive. Well, in every case, Autoplay takes over and suggests that I install the application, even though it's already on the machine, or it asks if I want to repair the installation. So then I have to close out of that procedure before I can open the Windows Explorer and do what I want to do. You can turn Autoplay off on a drive-by-drive basis, and you can turn it off for drive types, I do both. I turn autoplay off for every single drive on the machine whether it's there or not and I turn it off for all drive types CD, DVD drives and any removable drive. Now this doesn't turn off automatic discovery of drives by music, photo and video applications. If you do want to turn that off you'll need to deal with the specific application to do it. Autoplay is also a security concern If you insert a CD, a DVD, or a thumb drive, and autoplay is enabled, and if the CD, DVD, or thumb drive has any malware on it, it could be installed automatically by autoplay. This should never have been enabled by default. If you have more than 400 folders, and that may seem like a lot, but you probably do, particularly if you organize photo and music files to make them accessible, then you may want to consider increasing the number of folders that Windows Explorer remembers. The default is 400. You can set this number as high as 65,527. In my case, the computer has a total of 102,777 folders. 20,000 of those are on drive C, 41,000 on D, 4,000 on drive M, and about 24,000 on drive N. Drive Z, my hot backup drive, has about 13,000 directories. Sometimes when you shut Windows down, it takes a very long time. If an application or a service hangs on shutdown, then Windows waits a while before finally killing it. Actually, it waits about 20 seconds, but that may seem like forever when all you want to do is turn the machine off, and it can add up if you have multiple processes that have stopped responding. You can lengthen the time or shorten it to as little as nothing. Now, this does require some changes to the registry, so you'll want to be very careful if you choose to perform these registry edits, and there are four of them. You'll find them on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Again, that's www.techbiter.com. Registry errors can keep the computer from booting, so be very careful. What you'll be doing is reducing the amount of time to one or two seconds instead of 20 That means if there's been a problem with a program, when you shut down Windows, the shutdown process will happen a lot faster. If your computer has serial ATA drives, not the older ATA, now called parallel ATA, you may be able to increase their speed a bit by enabling write caching, but this can be hazardous. You want to do this only if you have an uninterruptible power supply that you trust, Write caching is disabled by default because a loss of power during the time the computer is waiting to write data to the disk can cause some pretty serious problems. This is an easy thing to change, and you'll find the instructions on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you are bugged by slow menus, XP and Vista both wait 400 milliseconds, that's just a little less than half a second, before opening start menu items and application menu submenus. Those are the ones you see after you hover the mouse over a menu entry with one of those right-facing triangles. You can cut the delay to 200 milliseconds, or you could cut it to zero if you want. Warning, though, if you do cut it to zero, you probably won't like the result. This is another registry hack. So the standard warnings apply in terms of being very careful when you do it. And again, you'll find the exact instructions on the TechBiter Worldwide website. A couple of things you don't want to do. Some people claim that a registry hack that turns off the last access timestamp will speed up an XP computer. What is a last access timestamp, you may wonder? Well, Windows adds a timestamp to every file when it's accessed by an application. This is an action that takes Milliseconds. So the registry hack to turn it off won't improve anything by any appreciable margin. And worse, it may cause problems because some backup applications take that timestamp into consideration. So if you see a suggestion like that, don't. And don't even think about killing System Restore. I've seen some bogus tips around on the web that tell you that Doing this will speed Windows, and indeed, you might see a slight improvement. But what happens when a faulty device driver installed by Windows Update starts causing problems? If you know how, it's easy enough you can uninstall the new driver, find a copy of the old driver, and simply restore it. But do you know exactly how to do that? Alternately, you could use System Restore to fix the problem in less than a minute. That sounds to me like a better way to save time. System Restore is active only when it's creating a checkpoint, so keep your hands off System Restore. It's a good safety feature. What program do you use for email? It seems like not long ago we had lots of choices for email applications. The same was true for word processors. Well, now only a few remain. Microsoft Outlook, Lotus Notes, Thunderbird for Mac users, Apple Mail. I didn't mention Eudora because it seems all but dead. It is supposed to be released someday as an open source application, and there is a beta version currently available for download, but it doesn't seem to be making a lot of progress. And I haven't mentioned the bat. I discovered it quite by accident in the 1990s and adopted it as my permanent email client in 2000. The BAT has been my favorite email application since at least May 28, 2000. That's when I wrote about it on Technology Corner. Before that, I had used Pine, then Elm, and finally Eudora. From the beginning, I recognized the BAT's uncommon flexibility despite its lack of cogent documentation. Simply put, there is not a faster, more adaptable, better secured email application than the BAT. I was nervous, though, when they moved from version 3 to version 4, because sometimes a major version release can damage an otherwise good program. It gets improved to the point that it's no longer the program you came to love. The Bat is a product of RIT Labs in Moldova. Moldova is a small country sandwiched between northeast Romania and southwest Ukraine. The developers clearly believed that version 4 of their application was good and they were willing to bet that their users would agree, so they did a pretty interesting thing. They released version 4 of the BAT 4.0 with a notice that any version 3 registration key would work with it. There would be no charge, they said, until they released version 4.1. Now, nearly a year later, they have done that. A year ago, I said that I was worried that the BAT version 4 might abandon some of the application's geek-friendly past and try to hug Outlook users a little too hard. One of the primary areas where the BAT has been improved is in handling HTML-coded email, both sending and receiving. That may sound like they're moving toward Outlook, but I think that's not the case. The developers have simply realized that a lot of people subscribe to newsletters, such as the TechBiter Worldwide newsletter, and that those publications use graphics and formatted text. They've also realized that many people want to be able to use graphics and formatting in their own messages. There are email purists who say that HTML has no place in email. At one time I agreed with that point of view, and at some level I still do. But email is all about communication, and if formatted text and images makes it easier to communicate clearly, then I'm all for it. The Bat's clever response to concerns about security issues introduced by HTML Mail is to give users a way to select which kinds of images are allowed and from which domains. This fine granularity allows the user to permit images from, say, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, while forbidding images from all unknown domains. One of the key questions that any new user should ask is whether a proposed new email application will be able to accept messages and address books from whatever application they were using previously. The BAT scores pretty well in this regard because it can accept data files from Microsoft Office Outlook, the contacts folder, addresses from any LDIF file or business card file, addresses from any plain text file that uses comma or tab separation, as well as directly importing Eudora and Pegasus addresses. In some cases, you may need to finesse the transfer of email messages, but an online support group will probably be able to help you find your way if you get slightly lost. Security-minded folks will appreciate the BATS support for authentication protocols and encryption. It also works with antivirus plugins ins for many suppliers and takes a very cautious approach with HTML mail by providing its own viewer instead of depending on the Microsoft viewer and by not running any scripts that are included with messages. One of my favorite features is the sorting office, a rules-based function that can sort messages when they arrive, when you read them, or when you reply to them. The filters can also apply to outbound mail. A filter may consist of several AND and OR tests that can be individual or grouped. Here's an example. I'm the co-owner of a discussion group that's hosted on a listserv machine at Indiana University. When a spammer sends a message with a forged header, the listserv machine bounces the message to me. Well, I don't really want to see the message because on a bad day there can be several hundred of them, And it's really not important for me to see it because the message didn't make it to the list. It was no threat. So I've established a rule that looks for any message that comes from the listserv machine and has a subject line that begins with one of two possible phrases. If both conditions are met, the message is deleted locally and on the server. No muss, no fuss. The BAT is by far the most robust system I have encountered because the filtering system can also send an automatic response, open a manual reply with or without a custom template, forward, redirect, or print a message, send a reading confirmation, or even run an external program. And if you perform a lot of repetitive tasks, such as responding to messages asking for standard kinds of information, you'll want to use the BAT's Quick Templates. You might want to set one up that writes five paragraphs of text about your super whammo doggy-doo dumper so that when you receive a question about it, you simply type SWDDD and press control Spacebar. The bat would then type your five paragraphs, you press the send button, and you're done. Have you ever received a message you wanted to keep and then accidentally deleted it? The bat protects you from doing this by allowing you to park a message. Once you park a message, you cannot delete it. Until you unpark it. And version 4.1 adds an automatic backup and restore function. I don't use it because I have other methods in place for backup and restore, but if you don't, this would be a good first step toward protecting your email. At the office, I'm forced to use Microsoft Outlook, which does have some significant advantages if you're using an Exchange server so that coworkers can see each other's schedules on the calendar. But Outlook is slow, and message filtering is cumbersome. Fortunately, I've never had to use Lotus Notes. I say fortunately because I've never heard from any Lotus Notes user who had very much good to say about the application. And lately, I've been using Thunderbird. If I didn't know about the bat, Thunderbird is probably the application I would use. It has a decent user interface, handles multiple accounts and multiple identities within an account, and has easy-to-use message filtering. The bat's interface is improving, but Thunderbird is a bit ahead there. On other issues, the bat wins without even breathing very hard. If you are intimidated by the bat, and indeed some people are, then consider Thunderbird. It's free, it's open source, and it's from Mozilla. You may be a bit distressed as you're installing Thunderbird to see the meager number of applications it claims to be able to import from, but relax. The import function handles address books from Eudora, Outlook, Outlook Express, and various text formats, LDIF, tab, comma-separated, and standard text. It will handle mail files from Communicator 4, Eudora, Outlook, and Outlook Express, and server settings from Eudora, Outlook, and Outlook Express. So, in other words, it's a lot more complete than you might have been led to suspect. Once you have Thunderbird installed, you'll find that it looks a lot like most other email programs, sections for accounts and folders, messages, and, of course, the current message. The account settings are far more sparse than what the BAT has to offer, and so are the sorting filters. When a message satisfies a filter, Thunderbird can move or copy the message to a folder, forward the message, reply using a template, mark the message, delete it, or delete it from the server. Filters apply only to inbound messages, so it's a fairly powerful filtering mechanism, just not as comprehensive as that offered by the BAT. So the bottom line for both Thunderbird and the Bat is four cats. If what you want to do involves email, the Bat can do it. Figuring out how might take a little time, but the feature set makes it all worthwhile for me. But there is a learning challenge there. For Thunderbird, the current version has a fine, polished finish. It's easy to set up, easy to configure, and easy to use. Sometimes a little light on features, but ease of use wins in this regard. Some accounts are too small to stand on their own and not newsworthy enough to be added to nerdly news, but they might be of interest to you. So the question is, what to do with them? Well, I collect them, much the way people collect balls of string or rubber bands, which does actually raise a question. Does anyone really still collect string or rubber bands? And if so, why? Well, anyway, when I've collected enough of these things, I rolled them out. So here we go. It all started on a Sunday morning in January. A Google alert told me that KCBS, the CBS radio affiliate in San Francisco, had written something about TechBiter Worldwide. Of course, curiosity, if not vanity, got the best of me, and I wanted to see what they had written. I clicked the link. Nothing happened. About that time, I also noticed that my connection to Indiana University had timed out, but that sometimes happens on a Sunday morning if the network engineers are performing maintenance on the server. But then I couldn't raise the New York Times or the Washington Post either, so something was apparently amiss. My first step was to see if I could figure out where the trouble was, so I tried logging on to the Internet Storm Center. No response. I pinged the Storm Center. Nothing. Pinged Microsoft. Nothing. Ping the Cobalt Group. Nothing. Ping my own website. Hey, I got a response there. Ping the New York Times. That's not permitted. Ping the Washington Post. No response. Hmm. Well, that certainly confirmed that there was a problem somewhere, but I still had no idea where. So the next tool was Traceroute. I tried the Washington Post first because I knew it would fail, and I wanted to see where it would fail. Then I tried Bluehost, which is where my website is located. That worked. Traceroute showed 15 hops from My Computer to Bluehost. The first hop, My Computer. Second hop, Wide Open West. That one timed out. That's expected. Most ISPs don't respond to pings. The next hop was Wide Open West's outbound port, then several hops through the Level 3 network at Cincinnati and Chicago. The next four hops shifted to IntegraNet, starting in Chicago, passing through Denver. Eventually, Bluehost responded. Trace complete. All the times looked good. So that definitively cleared Wide Open West of any blame. I called the technicians at Wide Open West to see if they had heard of any problems. At that point, they hadn't. I then managed to connect to my office computer, launched a browser, and tried connecting to KCBS, the New York Times, and the Washington Post from there. Zero connections after more than ten minutes of waiting. I did that to be absolutely certain that Wide Open West wasn't involved. The outbound connection from the office doesn't use Wide Open West, and I got the same response, so obviously the problem was elsewhere. A few hours later, connectivity was fully restored. The Internet Storm Center had no report. Oh, and regarding what KCBS wrote about the program, well, I never did locate that. Oh well, at least it gave me something to babble about. Sometimes I delete an email message that turns out to be something I wish I had kept, yeah, this is one of those cases where I didn't use the park feature. And no, this isn't another tale about the importance of backup, at least not in the traditional meaning of the term. All of my email comes to one of several accounts associated with my domains. Spam Arrest picks up everything from there. But something else happens first. Every message I receive, including spam, is forwarded to a special Gmail account that I use as an archive. Only the most recent 30 days' worth of spam is retained, but everything else stays there. This means that if I need to access a message when I'm not at my home computer, I can log into Gmail and look it up. Now, as useful as this is, it's even better to be able to log on to the special account and find a message that I realized later contained information that I wanted. You can accomplish the same thing even if you don't run your own domain. Just visit the Settings tab from your Gmail account, choose Accounts, and select Get Mail from Other Accounts. Give Gmail the information about the other account's POP3 server, your username, and your password. Make sure you check, leave a copy of the retrieved message on the server, and you're done. You'll be able to collect your email in the normal way with whatever application you use, but you'll also have an archive copy on Gmail. You can perform the same bit of magic with up to five email accounts for each Gmail account you have, and yes, you can have more than one Gmail account. You simply can't be logged into more than one at a time from the same browser. If you do need to be logged into more than one Gmail account, just open a second browser. And speaking of that, how many browsers do you use? Recent statistics suggest that Firefox has captured about 30% of the browser market and that Microsoft has fallen to less than 70%. One of the problems with these figures is that those who offer them always sum them to be 100%, and that, on its face, is nonsense. You may have a favorite browser, I do, minus Firefox, but you may have other browsers on your computer. I have four browsers in my quick launch bar, Internet Explorer, Firefox, Opera, and Chrome. Other browsers are installed on the computer, and I use them occasionally. So if I visit the same website with several browsers, am I counted as several users? There is no doubt that Firefox is gaining ground, and Internet Explorer is losing ground. But is Firefox really the favorite for 30% of Internet users? And who figures this stuff out and how? Normally, the figures come from hit tracking companies, but there are several of these, and there's no way to tell if their mix of users is in any way representative. I can tell you that 45 of the most recent 100 people who visited the TechBiter Worldwide website at one point in the recent past were using the latest version of Firefox that eight other visitors had earlier versions of Firefox, and that 38 had some version of Internet Explorer. It was interesting that Netscape didn't show up at all in that list. Apparently, all of those 100 most recent visitors got the memo about Netscape being discontinued. But that's only the most recent 100 visitors to my website at a certain point in time, a snapshot of one instant. So if you hear these kinds of statistics, bear in mind that they're largely meaningless. Matthew DeBoard, writing in The Big Money from Slate, has some interesting ideas about technology and the auto industry. So does Marty Winston, who writes about hardware and software most of the time, but took a side trip to the auto industry. The point of DeBoard's article is Car 2.0. I think you'll find it interesting reading. There's a Digest version on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and from there, a link to the full article that DeBord wrote on Slate. In nerdly news, malware. Google says it's everywhere. Last Saturday, I was writing an article about the importance of keeping websites up to date, and I wanted to refer to the song Kansas City from the musical Oklahoma. I asked Google for Oklahoma musical lyrics. And, as expected, Google gave me a full page of references to sites that provided lyrics. But every single site on the first page was shown as being a dangerous place to go. So was every site on the second page. And the third. Hmm. So then I thought I'd see what Google thought of my own website. I searched for TechBiter Worldwide, and it said TechBiter Worldwide is a dangerous place to go. Well, there is no malware on TechBiter worldwide. Maybe some misspelled words, a little bad grammar or faulty syntax here and there, a few lousy puns, but no malware. What's going on? I posed that question to Google. According to Google's Vice President of Search Products and User Experience, Melissa Mayer, it was a human error. Google flags search results with the message, This site may harm your computer if the site is known to install malicious software. Meyer said that Google works with a non-profit organization called StopBadwareOrg to obtain a list of bad URLs. But that brought a nearly immediate response from Maxim Weinstein at StopBadware. This is not accurate, Weinstein said. Google generates its own list of badware URLs, and no data that we generate is supposed to affect the warnings in Google search listings. Google later revised its statement to confirm that it maintains its own list without input from Stop Badware. On Saturday morning, an update to the list of bad URLs included one that consisted of a single forward slash. Well, a single forward slash expands to mean all URLs. The incorrect warnings began appearing about 9.27 Eastern Time on Saturday morning. Google noticed the error fairly quickly, started repairing the damage around 10.10, And by 10.30, the faulty messages had mostly disappeared. But during the problem period, Google even reported that Google was a dangerous site. And I have the screen capture of that. It's on the TechBiter Worldwide website. When Google warns about a site, it provides a link to help users understand what the problem is. Apparently, a lot of people were trying to follow that link on Saturday morning because when I tried to follow it, all I got was a message that said, Server Error. The server encountered a temporary error and could not complete your request. Please try again in 30 seconds. The problem also affected Google Mail. If you were expecting an important message to a Gmail account, check the spam box. Google and a couple of non-profit partners are working on a computer diagnostic program, Google M-Lab, or Google Measurement Lab. Currently, it offers a speed test, but you may have to wait a bit for it. Only three servers are directly available, and when I tried them on a quiet Sunday morning, the results weren't really very encouraging. First, there was a warning on the main page that said, if Google's M-Lab does not load below, it may currently be overloaded. This is a brand-new service that has gotten way more popularity than expected. Yeah, that does kind of sound like it was written by someone who's running an email scam. The warning goes on to suggest using speedtest.net or speakeasy.net if Google MLAB is unresponsive. Normally, I use Speakeasy. It's a good service. Well, I tried server number one, and it told me I would have to wait 2,250 seconds. That's 37 minutes and 30 seconds. Eventually, the process just timed out and never did provide a speed test. I have heard from some people who have told me that once they waited the half hour, they did get their speed test. Server 2 told me that it was too busy, and I quote, Server busy, too many clients waiting to be server. Please try again. I suspect that most clients were actually waiting to be served, not server. Server number 3 had the same message, but they spelled server correctly. Now, this is not to hold Google or its partners up to ridicule. It's simply to illustrate what can happen when people develop a useful service that is noticed by a few people, who then tell a few of their friends, who 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 tell a few. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.